the startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is the Pain of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. Hello, I'm Paul. This is the Notion Capital Pain of Scale Podcast. And today, category design. It's a term we use often on this show, isn't it? Proof being all the discussions we've had, for instance, with uh, JJ, was episode P408 or Bryn Kennedy in P204, Dave Peterson in P103, all these numbers. And even actually our own Chris Tuckman of Notion briefly discussed creating a new category of venture capital in the special episode 1001. So Stephen, why is Notion so obsessed with category design and who do we have the pleasure to discuss with today? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when we think about the challenge that faces an early stage startup, the kind of company that we invest in, they're redefining the rules of an entire industry. They're they're defining a problem that's never been solved before. And the world's greatest technology companies, they define and are synonymous with a category which they solve uniquely well. And so at Notion, we're, we're fascinated by this concept and we've been exploring it for three or four years with some of the world's leading thinkers like Dave Peterson, as you mentioned, but also practitioners from across our portfolio. And I asked Dave for a recommendation and he said, you've got to talk to Naomi. And so Naomi Allen, she's the co-founder and CEO of Brightline. It's the world's first technology-enabled behavioral health home for children and families. She's an entrepreneur, 20 years hands-on experience developing high-growth health tech companies, a former advisor to our friends at Play Bigger. She's also the mother of three children and ascribes to the philosophy, and I love this, of radical flexibility. That sounds like a really important part of your life. Welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just jump in. What is category design to you and why is it so important? Yeah, so I first became obsessed with category design, I think six years ago, I was a founder at a company called Castlight Health in 2008. And as we were preparing to take Castlight public, In 2013, I think what we quickly discovered was people didn't really know what we were about. And Castlight had built this extremely novel product. We were really one of the very first health tech companies that was innovative in the United States. But we struggled for people to really understand us. What was the major problem that we were solving in the U.S. healthcare system? And what was kind of the the special sauce of how we were solving it? And so as a leadership team, I think at the time I was our chief product officer, as a leadership team, we, we brought in the group from Play Bigger, Dave and Alan, Chris, and we spent quite a number of months together really talking about what was the business at, at our core DNA. And I think what I learned then that has really held true for me as an entrepreneur and as an advisor with Play Bigger, helping other companies design categories, is that in many ways, it's not the product that actually wins the day for growing companies. It's not even the company. You can have the world's best sales team, or you can actually have a product that isn't necessarily the number one product in the market. But what it really is, is about defining a category. And that's really about showing the world what problem you solve, how you uniquely position to solve that problem, and then building an ecosystem around you to help really launch a new category. There's so many examples of this that I find really fascinating. But if you think about kind of where, you know, where Microsoft was many, many years ago, none of the products that they ultimately put together into the Microsoft Office suite were in and of themselves the best products. 
And frankly, you know, Microsoft as a company was very strong, but they didn't have necessarily the best sales team or the best marketing function. But what was really fascinating about Microsoft was they painted a story about enabling professional workers with a whole suite of tools. And they really helped catch fire of the idea that it actually is valuable to have an email tool integrated with a spreadsheet tool, integrated with a a presentation tool. And they really painted a new category. And I think that Microsoft, you know, for many, many years, just introduced category after category in a really powerful way, even though in many cases, that was not with the best products or even necessarily the best company structure. So category design is, is to me, just a fundamental way for companies to really win massive new markets. That's a great example. But as an earlier stage founder of a first of its kind business and in your first of its kind business, How are you laying the foundations for an entirely new category? And what can others learn from your experience of doing that now with Brightline? Yeah, so here's what I'll say. It is so hard to do in the first six months of a company. And it's frankly kind of never too early to start thinking about category. But I think that there's some things that founders can do very early on. One is, this sounds kind of trite, but spending a lot of time talking about the problem you're solving and how are you uniquely positioned to solve that problem. And so for us, the problem that we're solving, I'm a mom of three kids and one of my kids has had his own journey in the behavioral health experience. And what we found was how, especially in the US, we make it incredibly hard for families to access high quality health care for behavioral health. And so we spent a lot of time in the first months of the business just talking to families about what's the hassle map? What are all the challenges you face? What are, you know, whether it's, you know, the fact that you have a six month wait list to get treatment in the US or treatment is all cash pay out of network or the fact that as a parent, you don't actually know whether the clinicians you're seeing are following high quality care. And so we just have spent a lot of time really sitting in that problem space And I think so often entrepreneurs, and I put myself in this category, we're so eager to go tell the story and the vision that we leap forward to what we think the answer is before we spend enough time in the problem space. And, you know, at the end of the day, category design is around really deeply understanding a problem you're solving and having, you know, a unique perspective on what it takes to solve that problem. And then frankly, figuring out a way to invite others on the journey with you to create an ecosystem around a new category. You know, and I'll I'll harken back to my last role right before founding Brightline. I was the chief growth officer for Livongo. And I joined Livongo pre-IPO at the time where Livongo was moving from being a diabetes management company to managing care for a bunch of chronic conditions. So they had a diabetes solution. They had just launched hypertension. We were acquiring a diabetes prevention company. We acquired a behavioral health company. And so the challenge Livongo was facing was that they were rolling up care around a bunch of chronic conditions but so was everybody else. And so if you looked at the, the landscape, what was happening on the chronic condition management space was that everyone looked the same. Everyone had started with one condition and was expanding out the condition platform and everybody said it kind of looked the same and sounded the same. And so when I joined Livongo, I spent a lot of time with Glenn and Hemant and Jenny Schneider and the board and Chris Bishop, just a wonderful group of people. And they were all saying, gosh, you know, we are solving a unique problem, but nobody understands what we're doing that's so special and that's so unique. And so over the course of a number of months as a leadership team at Livongo, 
what we extracted out of the business was that there's a bunch of noise. So if you have a chronic condition, you're getting conflicting advice from a bunch of different clinicians. If you've got, you know, a podiatrist and an endocrinologist and a primary care doc and you know, let's say you also have hypertension, so you've got a cardiologist and, and, you know, many people with chronic conditions actually have more than one thing going on. And so how do you cut through all that noise? How do you use information and data and coaching to separate the signal from the noise? And so what we developed was a point of view that health signals and applying them to, to really shape behavior change is the antidote to noisy healthcare. And healthcare, if you're trying to navigate a healthcare system by yourself without a really clear guiding light, that healthcare feels really overwhelming. It's confusing, it's complex, it can be very costly. And so what we did at Lavanga was launched the category of applied health signals. And that was using our devices and our coaches and our machine learning engine to separate the noise and the signal and then to use that signal in a really human-led way to help guide and coach individuals on how to live their best life, regardless of their chronic conditions. And so it took us a long, frankly, a long time to figure out how we were really uniquely different than the Omadas and the Onduos and all of the, you know, the Vitas of the world that also had a chronic condition platform. And so I think that journey is just an incredibly foundational journey and I think very often entrepreneurs either don't take the time to establish that journey early on, or they frankly just write it off as, as a marketing journey, which it's definitely not. And I could talk more about how category design fundamentally changes a, a company's DNA. But I think those are some of the challenges for laying a foundation for a new category as an early stage founder is frankly, spending enough time in the problem set, investing enough time to define the category early on. And then ensuring that it doesn't, you know, quote unquote, just become a marketing effort that, that is really across the whole DNA of the company. With your experience at Livongo and now Brightline, which are two kind of health focused companies, compare that to what you witness at Play Bigger, for instance. Do you think that category creation and design is different in a highly regulated and complex industry like healthcare or the dynamics are very similar? You know, I think if you're in a highly complex multi-stakeholder industry like healthcare, I think the tricky thing is, is frankly, just the ecosystem play. And so I'll spend a minute and talk about the role of ecosystem in a category design context, which is to say category leaders, you know, so if category kings, which is the play bigger term for the person that leads a category, those category kings can't live in a vacuum. You can't be a category of one. That's frankly, just, you know, not an actual category. <laughs> and so the thinking that I think companies need to do early on is how do you create an entire industry? industry around this, right? So if you think about, you know, Apple is a great example of this. It wasn't enough for Apple to really innovate the idea of having a smartphone where you've got apps that reside on the smartphone. In order for a smartphone to actually be smart, you have to create an entire ecosystem of people who want to create and launch apps on the smartphone. And certainly Apple didn't get there day one. I think when they launched, they had maybe one or two apps in the quote unquote app store. I mean, I, I was at Stanford Business School when Steve Jobs came and spoke to us about the app store and kind of how that was going to play out. And we all thought he was crazy, but you know, <laughs> fair enough, they built an entire ecosystem around the idea of having a smartphone and what makes, you know, what makes that really a viable community. And so I think that's just one of the things that's tricky in healthcare is that there are such complex, multi-stakeholder, very entrenched 
perspectives on how healthcare should work and, and frankly, highly complex rules and regulations around healthcare should work. And I'll give you just one example from Brightline, which is, you know, when we started Brightline, one of the big gaps that we heard from families was just affordability of high quality behavioral health for kids. And so in the U.S., the vast majority of behavioral health care is out of network, which means that individuals are paying cash for all their services, which ultimately means that most families can't afford any type of behavioral health treatment for their kids. And in fact, what you see is, is only about 20% of kids ever get any behavioral health care in the U.S. And so you know, when we started to talk with health plans to say, look, you know, Mental Health Parity Act was a federal mandate for the U.S. as far back as 1996. What gives? Why isn't there better reimbursement rates for this? And what we learned from health plans was, you know, we've kind of reached the stalemate situation in the U.S. Health plan leaders would say, look, we'd be willing to pay more reimbursements for behavioral health providers, if only they would measure more clinical outcomes, access operations, whether they're using evidence-based protocols. And so, you know, from the health plan's point of view, they don't know which clinicians are providing great care with great results. And so they don't know which ones to reimburse at a greater rate versus not. And from the clinician's point of view, you know, health plans don't pay them to do that type of measurement and documentation. And so, We've reached this kind of stalemate crisis level around pediatric behavioral health in the U.S. And so for us, what we found when we started to ask the questions was that this problem that we're solving is a systemic stalemate that's really kind of evolved between the clinical community for behavioral health and the payers for behavioral health. So, you know, enter into our world, Brightline, we're a tech-enabled platform that relies very heavily on evidence-based protocols, and we use technology to develop and run systems of measurement. So pre, during, and post-treatment, we're each week measuring how a child's progressing. We're using clinical protocols. We're using technology to evaluate our clinicians following the protocols with high fidelity. And so we just get this opportunity to go enter into a complex multi-stakeholder entity with an entirely new offering, an entirely new category of care. But we wouldn't have gotten there if we hadn't spent a lot of time talking to those entities and really understanding the complexity of the current context. So you articulated really well about the importance of spending time obsessing about the problem and really understanding the hassle map you know, establishing the point of view, thinking about the ecosystem because you can't build a category with just one player in there. But I wonder if you can talk us through the evolution that follows perhaps from that point through to Category King. Absolutely. So I think what you see in the best case scenario is founding teams spend time thinking about the problem they're solving and then they map out what I would call a, a from to. And so anybody that's kind of followed along with, with Dave and Al's work around category design, you'll know that from two, it's really about painting a picture of where you want to take the category. So from X to Y. And so some examples of that for Brightline would have been from a very difficult, complex, hard to access, fragmented care to multidisciplinary, in-network, affordable, accessible care, right? And so you're painting a picture of, you know, if we throw the ball out five years from now, and we've solved the pain points of the category, where are we taking the industry? Where are we taking the problem? How are we solving the problem? And so that from two exercise is really important. And then from there, what it does is allows you to talk about how do we define that future state, that future vision? What are the words that we want to use to describe that future vision? And then very often that leads to a group of leaders writing what I would call a one-page manifesto. 
So what's really fun here is that if you can get three or four people to go off and just think about this future state, write down, what do you call that thing? How do you describe that future state? If you wake up five years from now and you've succeeded in building a category that you're trying to build, how does the world look and feel different? And what do you describe that new world as? And so that is such an interesting journey. And you'll often get back really divergent answers from different leaders. But then taking that and and sort of fleshing out, what is the North Star? What are we going to define the category as? How are we going to call the category? And then that typically then leads to a journey of saying, gosh, well, what we really want is for the category to be sticky. And in order for the category to be sticky, it can't just be a category name and some words on a page. We have to go build an ecosystem. We have to talk about what is the product blueprint that supports the category. How do we evolve our product roadmap? How do we invite others to be part of this category by giving you know, specific offerings to them? And so that's kind of the journey that I think really true category design leads to. And the other thing is you have to think about what is the way to introduce a category to an outside audience that you're targeting, that you want to inform about the category. And so that's referred to as, as a lightning strike. And if you think about that very terrible name, but it's a very effective analog, which is you want to think about a very targeted set of individuals that you want to have think differently about the world. And so you're creating an opportunity, a, a culmination of introducing the category to that set of individuals or that set of market leaders as a way to start to shape and inform their thinking. And so the category creation process, kind of the first visible manifestation of that is often a lightning strike, which can be, you know, it can be an event, it can be introducing a category through a digital blitz where you're publishing a manifestation on a website with a big marketing splash. It can be an industry opportunity where you invite potential ecosystem partners to launch products around the categories. There are lots of different ways to think about a, a lightning strike, but that's kind of, I would say, the the first year or so journey of category creation typically goes from talking about the problem you're solving through a lightning strike. It's a good example of a from to, of course, moving an entire group of people from this situation to this situation. And I really like that. You mentioned earlier on about this isn't marketing, but it would be easy for founders to kind of think that's what you're talking about. I wonder if you can just kind of paint the difference and why this is bigger than kind of a marketing strategy. Absolutely. So maybe I'll harken back to Castlight when I was running product. And so I'll tell you a little bit about the Castlight journey. When we started Castlight in 2008, the key market insight that we had to found Castlight was that there's a lot of inefficiency in the US healthcare system because consumers often don't know what's high quality care and what care costs. And that's because price is a very highly variable factor within US healthcare and that prices are not transparent and quality is not transparent. And so what we did at Castlight, we were on a mission to deliver price and quality transparency to the hands of consumers essentially optimize the market dynamics of the US healthcare market and, and make care, therefore, higher quality care, more affordable. If you think about sort of cost and quality on a matrix, you want to push people to the top right quadrant of high quality, low cost. And so that was, the I would say, the first few years of Castlight's journey was establishing transparency first in the, in the medical domain. And then we did that for pharmacy pricing. We did that for dental. We ultimately did that with the behavioral health offering as well. But what happened when we were getting ready to take the company public was we realized that we were missing a more fundamental insight, which was that 
that U.S. healthcare was really crippling U.S. business growth because if you if you're familiar with the U.S. healthcare system, medical claims expense is you know one of the largest and growing expenditures for any large corporation. So you know the the kind of running joke in the U.S. is that companies like like Safeway, Steve Bird's CEO was the CEO at Safeway would say things like, I'm running a healthcare company with a small grocery business on the side. Or the kind of the quote with Ford Motors was Ford spends more money on the healthcare benefits for their employees than they spend on steel. And so what, what became very apparent for us was we were actually talking about the wrong problem. We were talking about transparency for individual consumers, but what we really needed to do was level up and think about the implication for the enterprise and for the U.S. economy and for businesses to continue to be globally healthy by creating new ways to reduce overall healthcare costs for that major expenditure of claims expenditure for healthcare benefits for their employees. And so the implication was our category was no longer transparency for consumers. Our category was enterprise healthcare cloud and creating a system of tools and mechanisms for enterprises to understand their overall healthcare expenditures. And for me, as head of product at the time, the implication was I had to then go build a whole bunch of analytics products to help an executive and help a CFO understand which levers to pull within their healthcare benefits spend and to help a head of benefits understand which programs were performing and underperforming, which segments of the provider network were delivering high quality, low cost care. And so it was a profoundly transformative experience for Castlight because the implication was an entirely different set of products and becoming a platform company rather than becoming a transparency company. So we, you know, we had to fundamentally re-architect our product team. We had to radically change our and up-level our data sciences capabilities. We rebuilt all of our marketing. We had changed the way we measure performance for our team to become an enterprise healthcare business. And then you know, all of that was was in the context of also having to educate the market around why the way that the U.S. business community handled healthcare claims was essentially fundamentally crippling growth for many companies. And so there was a massive, I would say, overhaul kind of soup to nuts of the business strategy that we evolved to and that Castlights continued to run today around a platform as opposed to a transparency product. Not a marketing strategy. Not just transformational, of course, for the company, but for the category that you're creating. I wonder if I could just ask a a slightly different question. When I think about the world's leading category companies, one person is invariably synonymous. They're synonymous with the category that defines the problem. And they're, they're synonymous, of course, with the company that's uniquely positioned to solve that problem. You know, if you think of Musk or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever it might be, I wonder... How important is the authority of that category creator or champion, if you like, in this whole process? Oh, I love this question. I think it's a really interesting question that is often not talked about, which is I think that there is this cult of the CEO founder. And that's, I think, very evident now in the U.S. tech community. But I'll say that's not always been the case for category creation. And so I'll pick on one example that I, I truly love. I wrote about it when I was advising Play Bigger because I think it's such an unusual category example and one that didn't have a cult leader <laughs> sort of championing the category. It's Hallmark, the greeting card company. And what I really love about Hallmark was they had a unique insight and a problem that they were solving in the 1920s, which was that historically, the way of communicating news through mail was you either wrote a letter 
or you sent a postcard. Those were the two options prior to the notion of greeting cards. And so what they found in the 1920s was, you know, post-World War I, a lot of families wanted to convey very, very personal news, especially during the stock market crash. But they wanted to do it in a way that was uplifting, in a way that was beautiful, in a way that carried with it an elegance or a sense of support. And so this idea of having a card that conveyed a positive message but was still privately enclosed in an envelope was really the problem that Hallmark was solving was how do we communicate news in a different way? How do we communicate important um, caring for each other, whether that's a condolence card or a birthday card, in a way that's both uplifting and private? And so Hallmark created the greeting card industry and very interestingly had to create an ecosystem, which was two things predominantly. One was a new amount for a stamp, for more expensive stamps that could carry the weight of a uh, greeting card. And the second are the racks that display greeting cards in stores. And so it wasn't enough for them to create greeting cards. They had to actually innovate an ecosystem around that. But if you look at Hallmark today, which is an enduring consumer business still, there's no one person that you think about as like the category creator that, that defined Hallmark. And I think that's very common for categories. You know, if you think about an example that we often talk about in the, in the Play Bigger community is five-hour energy. Like you, I mean, maybe a few people know who invented five-hour energy, but you know, the idea of an energy shot, which is a very innovative consumer category, doesn't really have a very visible champion. I think in many cases in the US, we've evolved this idea of this sort of iconic category, king or queen. But there are a lot of categories for whom there's been a group of folks that have really led the category to the forefront without it being a single individual. It does seem to be pretty prevalent in the tech industry, though, doesn't it? And talking today, you said, you know, what we've got to remember is humans have a, a very little capacity to hold too many ideas at any one time. And so there's a simplicity in terms of the, the association between Bezos and cloud hosting and AWS or Musk and autonomous vehicles and Tesla that somehow seems to cut through. It's interesting. I don't know if this is something that is deliberate or it's a lead or a lag indicator. I'm not sure. I just think it's an interesting topic. I do too. And here's what I'll say, which is it certainly, it helps a category take hold if you have a vocal visionary leader and advocate for the category, without a doubt. And so it's funny, sometimes I'll get asked around, especially because I think Livongo in the US recently was seen as a very well-executed, successful IPO. And I think a lot of folks who kind of follow the Livongo journey know that category was a big part of that. And sometimes, you know, people will ask me, well, how did you help that category come to life? And I'll say, frankly, honestly, like part of the magic is that Glenn and Jenny and Lee and Haymont really believed that a category could be a big differentiator for the growth of the business. And so they invest a lot of energy in it. And I joke around with Glenn that, you know, we spend a lot of time just working on the language of how to talk about the category because part of launching a category is embedding a language that's consistent that you talk about, you know, you don't talk about the iPhone being cool or interesting. You talk about it as smart, right? The smartphone, this idea of a smartphone and, and just being consistent about you know, you don't talk about apps as as interventions. You don't you talk about them as apps, right? And so there's a language that you have to be very deliberate about when you introduce a new category. And certainly having dedicated, consistent advocacy and leadership that's outspoken that helps to land that language, that helps to talk about the from twos, that helps to talk about why the ecosystem is an exciting thing to join. That is certainly an incredible thing for a category to have. 
my only point was there's lots of categories that haven't had yeah. that that are very, you know, very well established. Yeah, I get you. And, and I think not everybody's built that way. But having that cult leader, as you put it, at the front of the business, kind of bringing people with you is really powerful. So what's the payoff? If you look at entire category, category kings and followers, and you map from the time the category king went public to the entire market size of all of the players in that category, you know, five or six years hence, you can see that there's a clear economic benefit from market cap to being the category king. And I think the data, I can't remember it offhand, but it's like upper 70th percent of all categories, the category king owns the market cap of 70% of that category. And so it benefits companies to be establishing and setting the parameters for the category so that anyone else that's coming is in a followership. It's like the thing that you so often learn. I remember when I was starting my career in sales in 2010, the thing that you always learn is you want to be the person who writes the RFP questions, right? And so I think of category leadership as sort of writing the RFP questions. You want to be the person that says it's not enough to be a diabetes management company anymore. Unless you understand health signals, you're never going to really be able to apply those health signals and shape behavior change for people that have chronic conditions. And behavior change is the name of the game. And so in becoming the category king and thinking very proactively about how to shape the category, how to define the language, how to paint the, you know, the from twos, how to plant the minds that are hard for your competitors to overcome, that just allows you to own the conversation in a way that I think is really important for founders to think about early and often. We know that COVID created a health crisis pretty much all around the world. Surely the well-being of kids under lockdown condition is an ideal. So has it changed a little bit of your timeline? And especially has this crisis changed your outlook on the category? or the speed at which you had to design the category because we were, we still are in a crisis. Absolutely. All of the above. <laughs> so, you know, our <laughs> company, our company is not yet a year old, which is kind of crazy. So what, you know, we were supposed to be building our MVP for launch in November. And in April, I took a week off, which my team is never going to let me do again, because when I came back, I said, guys, I think we need to launch by July. And so we need to just do a whole bunch of stuff to get ready. And our whole solution needs to be virtual care enabled. So we need to take all of the protocols that you would typically deliver in person in a clinic that you would walk into and make sure that they're safe, make sure that they're built, make sure that our clinicians are trained to deliver them through a virtual platform and telehealth. And so we did a pretty fundamental rewrite of a lot of the care delivery model for pediatric behavioral health that, frankly, I don't think anybody's ever done before. And so it's a very different arc of the business. I do think, frankly, that you know, if you think writ large about categories, there are fundamental inflection points for certain industries. You know, if you think about when cloud storage became ubiquitous and inexpensive, mm-hmm. It radically changed the CRM world, like a Salesforce would never have existed. And Siebel, frankly, at the time was a much better product, but there was a monumental shift that happened that made Salesforce emergent. And and it was also, you know, Benioff is one of those great examples of an exemplary category leader and painted up from two that was, was very compelling. But Siebel was a much better product. And I think there are these moments in time, and I think we're in the midst of one of them, especially for U.S. healthcare, where there's a sea change. And it does really enable certain companies to redefine categories or to define categories in a much faster time frame. 
And I think we're seeing that, you know, I think there's going to be real winners that come out of this time frame because it's just compressed a bunch of the healthcare space. And certainly we're, we're experiencing that in a very positive way for Brightline. Thank you. Naomi, fascinating conversation. And you're a really inspiring guide to this challenge. You know, I'm a CEO running as fast as I can, lights out all day long. When I say to other early stage founders that it's really worth taking the time to think about this stuff early on, because not only is it a powerful way to build a business, but it's a powerful way to build a team. And so one of the things that I've observed, and it's actually been proven out in the data, there was a study that the Play Bigger team did a number of years ago. In partnership with LinkedIn, think about LinkedIn, they have a lot of job postings. And the people who were clicking on job postings, they looked at kind of what are the jobs that are the most desired jobs, the most desired companies to work for. And I think seven out of the top 10 most desired companies to work for were the category kings in their industry. And it's because people want to work for companies that have a very clearly articulated vision of how the world should evolve and a pathway to get there. At the end of the day, that's kind of what category design is all about. And so, you know, for me as a CEO, when you think about the war for talent, it's not just about defining a category for purposes of selling or for purposes of defining an ecosystem or going out and, and being perceived as visionary from a market, go to market perspective. It's also about the internal discipline to hire people that are aligned with that North Star, to hire people that are motivated towards that mission. And, and you can really get outsized talent if you do this early and you do it well. Amy, that's a really lovely synopsis of the, the critical importance of this. And it ties that back beautifully to actually our very first episode in this series. Where I was talked, thinking about the same. I, was I knew you would be, Paul. <laughs> we interviewed Hector Garcia, who wrote a beautiful book, Ikigai. And we were talking about the application of developing the sense of purpose in an individual's life, but also a sense of purpose in a company's life. And you just told that story just so beautifully. If you haven't read it, you, you should seek it out and have a listen to the episode as well. It's a really, really fascinating listen. Thank you. I will. And it's been a really, really fascinating. Yeah, it was so really fun. great. Thank you so much. Appreciate um, it a lot. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Great to meet you both and hope to cross paths with you again soon. 